0: Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ.
1: Acts chapter six, verse eight through Acts chapter eight, verse three. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And Jacob went out into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush, When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, uh, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of you prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold,
0: Last week we looked at uh, 16th century England. Uh, We looked at Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley. This week we're still going to be in 16th century England, but a little earlier. In 1520, a Roman Catholic priest in England was greatly challenged uh, by the new teachings of this man named Martin Luther in Germany three years earlier in his 95 Theses. Uh, This this Roman Catholic priest's name was William Tyndale. Uh, Tyndale was deeply moved by Luther's demand to return to the text of Scripture, particularly uh, to the original Hebrew and Greek, in order to rightly understand and apply the commands of Scripture. There were numerous Roman Catholic abuses and widespread ignorance leading to the Protestant Reformation uh, and widespread ignorance even among, amongst Roman Catholic priests, some who didn't know Latin. <clears throat> so these priests and certainly all of the common folk were largely ignorant of what the scriptures actually commanded after an argument with another Roman Catholic priest who essentially said it's better to have the Pope's laws than God's law, Tyndale famously replied, if God spares my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. But without an English Bible, it was nearly impossible to evangelize his countrymen. In 1523, Tyndale's official request to Roman Catholic leadership to translate the Bible into English was effectively denied. Roman Catholic leadership didn't want people to be able to read the Bible, and it then lead to a similar reformation to what was happening in Germany under Luther's leadership. So Tyndale left for the European continent in 1524 to begin his translation work. Over the next several years, Tyndale labored to get the New Testament translated and printed in English, but there was the constant danger of arrest from Roman Catholic and English and European leadership, political leadership. By 1526, Tyndale's pocket-sized English New Testaments were being smuggled into England aboard ships inside bales of cotton and wheat containers. Roman Catholic leaders actively opposed these efforts and would burn English Bibles as they discovered them. They also stepped up their game to capture Tyndale. And by the time that Tyndale was captured in 1535, 1536, he had revised his New Testament translation, taught himself Hebrew, translated the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, twice because his first translations were lost in a shipwreck. And he had translated much of the Old Testament historical books from Joshua to 2 Chronicles. And he was imprisoned in the castle at Villevoorde in present-day Belgium, and he awaited trial. During his time in prison, he remained a thorn in the side of Roman Catholic leadership and European political leadership because, as John Fox writes, it is said he converted his prison keeper, the keeper's daughter, and others of his household. (laughs) In August 1536, Tyndale was condemned as a heretic for creating the English translation of the Bible, the fruits of his labors resting in many of your hands and laps even now. On October 6, 1536, Tyndale was given the chance to recant, and he refused. After a brief time of prayer, Tyndale was tied to the stake and then strangled to death by an executioner's noose. His corpse was then burned at the stake and then blown apart by gunpowder. Tyndale's last words before his death was a cry of prayer, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. By killing Tyndale, Roman Catholic enemies of the gospel believed that they were effectively preventing the spread of a readable version of God's word to common folk. But the Lord heard and answered the dying Tyndale's prayer. In 1539, only three years later, King Henry VIII authorized an English version of the Bible to be read in every church service of the newly created Church of England. Tyndale's translation work and martyrdom were springboards for the spread of God's word and the church to the Western world. And in Acts 6 to 8, Jewish leaders believe that they're effectively preventing the spread of the gospel and God's word, the spread of the church, by killing Stephen. But God... But God had other plans. Through... That martyrdom. Stephen's speech and martyrdom serve as springboards for the spread of God's word and the church to the ends of the earth. If you're taking notes this morning, I've got three points. Three points. The first is this put off unbelief and trust Jesus, God's promised Redeemer. Put off unbelief and trust Jesus, God's promised Redeemer. The second, pursue holiness and live by the Spirit as God's new temple. Pursue holiness and live by the Spirit as God's new temple. And third, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, die for it. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, die for it. All right, first, put off unbelief and trust Jesus, God's promised Redeemer. So this is the second week of us looking at this exact passage. It's the second week of Pastor Michael reading the text, and I was so thrilled with his reading of it that I asked him to read it again. Last week, we looked at the context of Stephen's arrest as well as a big-picture view of his defense before the Jewish council. You'll remember that Stephen was falsely accused by Hellenist Jews of blaspheming against Moses and the law. Of course, these false witnesses were breaking the same Mosaic law that they professed to love and to defend. So it wasn't about faith. In his defense speech, Stephen walks the council through redemptive history. Paying close attention to Abraham, Joseph, Moses... David and Solomon, he spends a substantial amount of time outlining the lives of Joseph and Moses. And Stephen is showing the religious leaders that the pattern since the beginning of Israel's history has been that God's servants have frequently suffered for righteousness' sake at the hands of their own brothers and kinsmen. In other words, by and large, the old covenant community of Israel did not listen to the Lord and the Lord's messengers, but continually rejected them. God used the sufferings of these righteous men, these faithful men, however, to bring about redemption and salvation for Israel in a variety of ways. Joseph suffered at the hands of the patriarchs, the fathers of the tribes of Israel. I mean, you couldn't get further up in Israel than, like, the tribe is named after me. You couldn't get higher than the patriarchs in Israel, and yet it was the patriarchs who persecuted Joseph. But God used Joseph's suffering to bring about Joseph's exaltation. It was Joseph's position as a ruler in Egypt that saved Israel and those same patriarchs from famine and ushered them in to the lush land of Goshen and Egypt. The forefathers of Israel likewise rejected Moses as he attempted to save them. Moses suffered at the hands of his own people who refused to acknowledge that Moses had been exalted from a basket in water to the house of Pharaoh to a position of authority in order to bring about Israel's redemption from slavery and to bring about the exodus from Egypt. Even in the wilderness, Israel rejected Moses' leadership and Yahweh's commands, preferring to worship and submit themselves to an idol, a golden calf. Yahweh had given the covenant of circumcision to Abraham and his offspring in Genesis 17, but Stephen argues that physical circumcision clearly did not change Israel. Israel needed a circumcision of heart and spiritual rebirth. Israel's forefathers rejected the leaders and prophets that God raised up for them because they had hard, unbelieving hearts and preferred to worship the work of their own hands rather than the God who had fashioned their hands. Israel's history was replete with God's old covenant people, spurning God's appointed messengers, his leaders, his prophets. And of course, the primary point is that all of these Old Testament suffering servants that God sent, mentioned in Acts 7, ultimately point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus. All these little suffering servants point to the suffering servant who would come and die. Moses foretold of a prophet like him who would bring God's word to the people. But when Jesus called people to repent and believe in the gospel, most people rejected him like their forefathers. In fact, the Jews conspired with the Gentiles in order to have Jesus arrested, falsely accused, of course contrary to the law mocked, beaten, and then crucified on Calvary on a Roman cross. Like Moses, Jesus suffered as he sought to help Israel understand that God was giving them salvation through his hands. But the people didn't understand. They didn't want to believe. It doesn't come as a surprise then that Israel's present religious leaders are following in the footsteps of their forefathers and the patriarchs. And so Stephen's rebuke at the end of his speech makes total sense. You stiff-necked people. That might sound harsh, but that's the same term that Yahweh used in speaking to Israel in Exodus 32 in the golden calf incident. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name one of them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, like John the Baptist, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So if if Jesus isn't your hope and you don't keep the law... What is your hope? Joseph points to Jesus. Moses points to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets point to Jesus. The law points to Jesus. The Bible's typological structures point to Jesus. They find their fulfillment in Him. So when you're reading your Bible, you're always asking how is this pointing to Jesus? How is this finding its fulfillment in Jesus? God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, but Israel rejected Jesus because they were stubborn and idolatrous. The Old Testament gives us a preview of how unbelieving Israel is going to respond. Abraham's covenant of circumcision did nothing in giving the people new hearts. The law could do nothing to change the people from the inside out. Israel was consistently unable to keep it. In fact, the law increased sin. Is what Paul says. It condemned, it increased sin. Circumcision and the law brought judgment, not salvation. But God gave us pictures of righteous Old Testament servants who suffered so that we might understand the ministry of God's Son and how His suffering would lead both to His exaltation as God's right hand and to our salvation and redemption from sin and death. The end game of the Old Testament is the Son of God. He's the goal. He's the telos. He's the end. So, Luke clearly gives us an example of these religious leaders. Beloved, do not imitate the unbelief of God's old covenant people, particularly their leaders. We are under a new covenant, and praise the Lord. But in and of ourselves, we are no different than ancient Israel. And so if old covenant people were really good at disobeying and rejecting God's appointed servants, we have to understand that that's a a clear and present danger and temptation for us. Thankfully, we have new hearts that we might obey in the Spirit. Don't be a covenant people who resist the Son of God as He points you to the Father by the Spirit. Don't resist God's leaders as they aim to lead you to Christ. Do not be like Israel who... Once they were brought out of slavery to Egypt, Stephen says, refuse to obey Moses. Thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Chapter 7, verse 39. Like a dog returning to its vomit, Israel thrust aside God's appointed leader for them and longed to go back to slavery and idolatry, worshiping a golden calf, or Moloch, Repham, The host of heaven, like the sun and the moon. And just pulling back the curtains a bit. Holy City Church has had a number of church discipline cases the past several months and the past several years that the elders have had, had to deal with, some of which we'll have to present to you in the coming weeks. In each of these cases, we have professing Christians who refuse to obey the clear commands of Scripture, Who refuse to listen to pastors who correct them and plead with them to repent. And who thrust aside God's Savior, Jesus, and Christ's under-shepherds in order to turn back to the idolatrous desires of their hearts, which then work themselves out in deeds of the flesh. So like reading Acts 6, 7, and 8, let the religious leaders be a warning to you. If Christ has freed you from sin, beloved, don't let your hearts turn back to the Egypt from which God has saved you. Keep repenting. Be humble and confident in the grace that Christ alone provides. Keep trusting Jesus. If you're in Christ, God will keep you to the end. Done. Amen. How do we know that? because the scriptures clearly teach us that the new covenant community is a people who are fully regenerate. Their hearts have been made new by the spirit. God has united us to Christ. You are indwelt by the spirit. So God calls you saints. Saints means holy ones. Jesus' obedience has won your justification sanctification, glorification, adoption, reconciliation, redemption, conversion, every other benefit of salvation is yours in Christ. So you run to the cross and away from sin. You have new hearts and new minds. You have circumcised hearts, circumcised ears that the religious leaders did not. You have God's Spirit that old covenant Israel could only enjoy in part in a building. You've been changed from the inside out. What the law could not do, God has done for you in Christ. So Christ doesn't get you to conversion and then the law gets you the rest of the way. Jesus gets you to conversion and Jesus gets you to new creation. He causes you to obey. He is always the hope. You have been raised from the dead with Christ. The power of sin has been broken in your life. So keep trusting God's promises to you in Christ. Keep repenting and believing. Obey God's commands. Honor God with your tongue. Love the brethren. Outdo one another in showing honor and the power of the Spirit because you have been saved and loved by God. Religious leaders should have been looking back and seeing God's kindness to Israel in the midst of lots and lots of sin and have been expecting a Messiah to come who would do everything that the Old Testament said he would do. And they should have welcomed Jesus with open arms. But they murdered him because sin is irrational and that's what sin does. It always rejects the Son. And it always seeks to dominate you. So as we see with Joseph, Moses, Jesus, the apostles, and Stephen, God will vindicate His faithful saints who suffer for His glory. So don't don't waste your suffering. If you're in the midst of suffering, don't waste your suffering for righteousness' sake by running to sin. Don't waste your, your righteous suffering by running to grumbling and complaining. Don't abuse or malign the servants God has sent to you to build you up in Christ, to help you to endure to the end. Don't lash out at people, saints around you who are here to help you to strive to finish the race. Your sin is your enemy, not others around you in this local church. God judged Israel for rejecting His servants, and He will certainly judge those who profess Christ, but who also refuse to submit to Christ and to Christ-appointed servants and undershepherds in His church. Our actions, our attitudes, our words, our interactions should be marked by love, by God's grace, by faith, not unbelief. Stubbornness, lack of love, lying, coarse joking, quarrelsomeness, slander, pride, believing the worst in other Christians, being given to sexual immorality, despising authority, idolatry, unsubmissiveness, devotion to the wisdom unto the world—a wisdom of the world—and not to the wisdom of God. Those are all marks of unbelief. So when you see them in you, run from them, put them to death. Those are the marks of the religious leaders. And they were called stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. We must put these deeds of the flesh to death and put on the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Beloved, we must be marked by faith And good works, not unbelief and resistance to God's faithful servants. That's what professing Christians need to do. Uh, For those of you who are here and not Christians, welcome. So thankful that you're here. I would exhort you, especially children who are in here week in and week out, I would exhort you to trust Jesus, to trust His gospel to turn from your sins, to turn from your moral rebellion against God in repentance. Repent and believe was the call of Jesus. And if you repent and believe, God will save you in Christ. He keeps his promises. God will keep you. Religious leaders, religious leaders got this close to Jesus and missed him. Hundreds of years of anticipation and looking. And the religious leaders had the Son of God incarnate before their eyes, and they missed Him. They knew the Scriptures better than most everyone here. They lived overtly righteous lives. They were well-respected in their community, and none of that stuff transformed them. And they missed Jesus. They still rejected Jesus. Why? Because they didn't actually love God. And I'm regularly concerned for the children of believers in our midst who do not trust Jesus. Okay, we can't twist arms. We're not going to manipulate. We're going to call them to repentance. But kids, kids who are here regularly, with parents who are believers, okay, you're in here week in and week out, And you get to receive so many blessings of living and growing up in a holy household. Don't get this close to Jesus and miss Him. Because the judgment for you on this side of the cross will be far greater for for you than for those religious leaders before us. You stand on this side of the resurrection. You've been given the full canon of Scripture and to reject it, you've been given more. And to those who much is given, much is required. Don't get this close to, to Jesus and miss him. Don't ignore Christ's message or his gospel messengers. And what is the good news? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to the Jesus whom the Old Testament points to and the New Testament reveals. You will be saved. Jesus came to, to save the sick and the unrighteous. Not the, not the great people. He saves all kinds of people from all kinds of places and slave to all kinds of sins. And God has vindicated his servant Jesus and to reject him now will lead to your judgment and condemnation on the last day. And so I would exhort you, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Turn away from false faith. Turn away from disobedience and unrepentance. Turn away from unbelief. Turn to the Jesus who bore God's wrath for our sin on the cross, but whom God then raised from the dead on the third day, never to die again. An indestructible life is how the scriptures speak of Jesus' resurrection life. Jesus is at God's right hand. Stephen saw him. Standing, ready to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. He is a good and faithful king and master. He's worthy of your trust. I would exhort you, unbeliever in our midst, repent and believe. Repent and believe. All right, second point. Pursue holiness and live by the Spirit as God's new temple. All right, you might look at this point and be like, where in the world is he getting this? i argue it's in the text. Last week we saw how Luke presents Joseph, uh, Moses, Jesus, Stephen as righteous sufferers who were rejected by their own people. The people who should listen and believe reject it. And a core part of Luke's retelling of Stephen's speech is to make the point that throughout the Old Testament, Israel regularly rejected God's appointed messengers, prophets, and leaders, but God vindicated each of them and used Joseph and Moses in particular to be the means of saving God's people from calamity and slavery. Okay, Joseph and Moses, tiny little shadows pointing forward to Christ. And as the patriarchs and forefathers rejected, servants, religious leaders, in Stephen's day, are now rejecting the Son. But Luke has been doing something else in the book since Acts 1. He's been showing a transition from old to new, particularly as it relates to the Spirit and the temple. Jesus promised that when he ascended to God's right hand, he would pour out the Spirit in power. That was the promise. Okay, in Acts 2, we see the new covenant inaugurated and ushered in its fullness. And from Acts 2 to 6, we see a transition away from Old Testament temple, Old Testament Levitical system, sacrifices priests. And we see an emphasis on Christ's new covenant work working through the apostles, the ministry of the apostles, okay? We have to understand, in Israel, the only way that they enjoyed God's presence was through the temple. Why? Because if you've got sin before God, the only thing waiting for you is wrath. And if you don't take, away, if you don't take care of wrath, you get no God's covenant presence, So in order to enjoy God's covenant presence in Israel, they had to constantly kill innocent animals. Thousands and thousands and thousands of animals throughout redemptive history. Hundreds of years of blood spilt. And every sacrifice should have pointed out to those Israelites, it's my fault that this animal has to die. They're dying in my place. But they're dying in my place so that I can actually relate to God but I can only relate to God by this temple building and through the priesthood. There's a transition away from that that Luke has been pointing out. We need to understand it. In Acts 7, Stephen repeats another point throughout his speech God's presence could never be isolated to a building or city, nor was the Old Testament temple ever intended to be an end in itself because the temple pointed beyond itself to the far more glorious Son of God who would come. Look at Stephen's retelling of the Abrahamic story. Chapter 7, verse 2. The father of the Jewish people, Abraham, our father, Stephen writes to, uh, to relate to his Jewish brothers. Our father, Abraham, he encountered God, not in Jerusalem, not in the promised land, not in a tabernacle or temple building, And certainly not when Abraham would be considered a righteous man. No, Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. God came to the idolatrous Abraham while he lived in a foreign land. And God revealed his glory to him. Apart from the promised land, apart from the temple building, apart from the law, God met an idolater in a foreign land in order to save him and make him glorious covenant promises. And we need to praise the Lord that God meets people where they are. But even after Abraham was regenerated and declared righteous by faith alone, Abraham enjoyed God's presence apart from inheriting the land. The land was promised to him and his offspring, but it would be Israel who would enjoy the inheritance itself. But Abraham's past life as an idolater, his shadiness as a husband, and his attempts to force God's hand to give him a son apart from promise did not keep God from making a covenant with him, a covenant that included circumcision, which, if we want to understand the background, in the ancient Near East, only priests were circumcised across ancient Near Eastern cultures whether it's pagan or Hebrew, only priests were circumcised. So when he's commanding the covenant of circumcision, what is he saying to Abraham? Abraham, you're going to be a priest. Abraham, all of your offspring are going to be priests. My priests. A royal priesthood. God wanted Abraham himself to be the means of mediating God's presence to others at this time, not a tabernacle or temple building. And when Stephen transitions to the story of Joseph, it's important for us to see that it was the patriarch of, Israel's, uh, of Israel themselves, not pagan Canaanites, who persecuted Joseph. But it's also important to see what else Stephen says. The patriarchs sold Joseph, look at verses 9 and 10, chapter 7, into Egypt, But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt. God kept his promises to Abraham, but it's clear, Stephen again, God met with Joseph, a forefather in the Jewish faith, while Joseph was in a foreign land. God caused Joseph to be a blessing to Gentiles in a foreign land. And when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, the bones of Israel and the patriarchs were brought out of Egypt and into the land promised to Abraham. But why does Stephen say this? Why does he talk about the bones being buried? By the time of Stephen's preaching, the bones of Israel's patriarchs were buried in a land that now belonged to Samaritans. Israel's patriarch's bones, they didn't even possess those. Those were buried in a foreign land, a land that belonged to the Samaritans. Their graves were in a foreign land. Moses himself was brought up in Egypt. He was God's promised redeemer. But what does Stephen say that Yahweh revealed him, Or where Yahweh revealed himself? Look at chapter 7, verses 29 to 33. Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel, or in a flame of fire, in a bush. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground that was a foreign land. God met Moses, not in the promised land, not in a temple, not in a tabernacle, but in Midian at Mount Sinai, an area outside the promised land of Israel. Moses then performed mighty signs and wonders in Egypt. He then gave living oracles to Israel out at Mount Sinai. The law was given outside the promised land. Moses then performed, oh, I already said that. Moses performed these mighty signs in foreign lands, and then he was entrusted with the tent of meeting in the wilderness, not the promised land. All of these places of God's presence being revealed and enjoyed by his servants in Israel occurred outside the promised land of Israel and apart from the temple building. That's important. God's covenant presence on the tent of meeting was brought into the land by Joshua as Israel dispossessed the wicked nations living there. When David wanted to build a temple, God said no. You have too much blood on your hands. But I'll let your son build me a temple. I've never needed to live in a, in a building. And Solomon built God's temple. But even Solomon would pray in the temple dedication. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. First Kings eight twenty-seven. The prophet Isaiah would later say in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2a, and this is in Acts 7. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So as you look at Stephen's narrative, he spends a significant amount of time talking about God's presence amongst his people. Going through Israel's history, he then only spends five verses talking about the temple. This is the longest speech in in the New Testament. Longest speech in the New Testament, only five verses are on the temple. You gotta understand the temple was the center of religious life in Judaism. And what does Stephen emphasize? God meeting people where they are in foreign lands, outside the temple, outside the land. So what's the point that Stephen's making? Why emphasize that God met with Abraham, Joseph, and Moses in foreign lands and apart from Israel's promised land? Why emphasize that the bones of the patriarchs are resting in Samaria? Why give such little attention to the temple building, pay no attention to the city of Jerusalem, and then argue in multiple places no temple building, no building constructed by human hands could ever contain God's presence? Because Stephen is rejecting the faulty view of the Jews and religious leaders who would argue that God's presence could be limited to one particular location. And that the old temple building, Old Testament temple building, was an end in itself. What is Stephen arguing? The temple pointed to something better. God's presence throughout redemptive history met people outside. promised land outside the temple. The temple was itself just a small blip pointing to someone greater. It would be Jesus who would usher in the fullness of God's presence. It would be Jesus who would spread God's presence to the ends of the earth. Not a temple building, God is not limited to geographic areas or buildings. He he desires to spread his glory and salvation in Christ to all people in all places. This was the command given to Adam. You are my image bearer. Take my glory. Spread it all over the earth. Be fruitful. Multiply. Exercise dominion. And then sin. Why was Babel so terrible? Because they wanted to stay in one place. They wanted to disobey. They didn't want to spread. They wanted to build a tower to heaven. But Christ, the true image of the invisible God, has come and obeyed perfectly and he has been faithful and fruitful. He has multiplied his image bearers all over the world through the preaching of his gospel and his desire and promise are that all peoples will bend the knee to the God of glory. So we're not like Muslims in that you have to make a trek at least once in your lifetime to Mecca. We aren't Christians who are looking for a fourth or fifth temple building to be built on on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is just a piece of land. There's nothing spectacular about the geographic area of Israel in the Middle East. God is not as concerned with a holy place, at least in this world, He's not as concerned about a holy place as much as He is a holy people. His spirit isn't poured out on a building anymore. You don't have to come in here on a Sunday morning and listen to the priest mediate God's presence to you as the spirit is poured out on this particular building. That was Old Testament Israel. That is not the new covenant. Each of you enjoy the presence of God if you're in Christ. Everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. You know that you are forgiven. And you don't have to like, I don't have to like offer Hobbes, my dog, or like any, you have lambs or something, or you maybe have a bull, you don't have to offer any of those. Why? Christ was offered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. No temple building. It's done. It's done. The religious leaders and the Jews didn't understand the Bible's patterns and promises They didn't understand that in this fallen world, God is interested not in holy places, but in holy people. God has made his people holy, not through the blood of bulls and goats that can't take away sin, not through a man-built temple limited to one particular location, not through a geographic block of land in the Middle East that lacks his covenant presence. God has made his people holy through the blood of his son, through a heavenly priesthood and a tabernacle not made with human hands. And by His Spirit, applying the work of His Son to His people, uniting them to Jesus, God's temple, and making each of you, Christians, making you a temple of the Spirit, sealing you for the promised holy city, the new creation. Beloved, you are God's temple, not on the basis of righteous works on your part, but on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. Luke's story has reached an early climax to make this point. The Old Testament temple pointed to Jesus, and now God's people are temples of the Spirit all over the place. Not just at the Temple Mount of Jerusalem in the first century. The Old Testament temple has faded away, it has reached its purpose, it's fulfilled it. The Son of Man came. He died, he was raised. God's presence now rests upon Christ's church because the old covenant has passed away, the new covenant of Jesus Christ has been inaugurated. If then you are God's temple, saints, you must not resist God's spirit. You must not resist God's spirit as he leads you, convicts you, rebukes you, sanctifies you. You can't respond as the religious leaders did. You can't be stiff-necked. You can't, res- you can't resist the Spirit's call of repentance and of refinement through His servants. Like if that's the pattern of your life, then you're probably not a Christian. You can't continually resist the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit, but you, you, the pattern of your life must be one of repentance, even if it's weak, stumbling, bumbling. You, we cannot, we cannot replicate the unbelief of the religious leaders because we are God's temple. And as God's temple, you can't run to other things or to other people to enjoy God's rest and presence. You run to Jesus alone. Jesus is the hero, okay? Everybody else is gonna be a disappointment, okay? I, I disappointed my wife even before we got married. Disappointed, I, disappointed my kids a number of times, I've disappointed all of you, I'm sure. Some of you have told me. And here's the reality. Like, yeah, that's gonna, I, I'm going to be a disappointment to you. And I've accepted that. Because I can't be Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the high priest, not me. I need a high priest. The prophet Zechariah. I've always loved this. This is my dear brother, Aubrey, who came and preached last year. Uh, from uh, the UAE. He loved pointing this out to me. And the prophet Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 14 that the the kitchen pots and pans of his new covenant people would be inscribed with the statement, Holy to the Lord. Uh, Our family has been reading through the book of Exodus and our family worship. And uh, we recently read Exodus 28, maybe a couple weeks back. And the statement, Holy to the Lord, was engraved on the high priest turban right at his forehead. And the fact that Old Testament Zechariah says that a believer's pots and pans will be engraved with the same statement as on the high priest's clothing means that in this new covenant, even cooking is itself as holy an act as the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. What a grace from the Lord for many of us here to know that our faithful acts and our work, regardless of the job, our cooking, our cleaning, our caring for children or parents, our efforts in loving the church through volunteering and Holy City Kids, welcome team, serving in the sound booth, baking the Lord's Supper bread. All of it has profound holiness ascribed to it. Because you are indwelt by the Spirit. Everything that you now do, you do unto the Lord as an act of sacred worship. Like your life is a spiritual act of worship. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. There aren't tiers or hierarchies in terms of holiness. I'm not more holy as a pastor positionally than the saint who is a plumber. God has assigned to me a particular task in this body. He's gifted me by His Spirit to bless and to build up the congregation. I have qualifications that I have to meet for this particular office, but positionally before the Lord, I'm right there with my brothers and sisters. I I don't have a step stool where I'm just a little bit higher. He's gifted me by spirit to to do my part in the congregation. But my work doesn't have greater intrinsic holiness to it than our congregation's stay-at-home wives and moms. Our teachers, our nurses, our contractors, our IT workers, our photographers, our legal professionals, our automotive professionals, our students, our retirees, our builders, our landscapers, our grocery store workers, our engineers, our marketing professionals, or whatever it is that the Lord has you doing. Why? Because the Old Testament temple has reached its end. You are the temple. And you take God's presence with you wherever you are. You've been given spiritual gifts for the sake of the body. Use them for God's glory. The reality that you are God's temple and that God's presence was not ultimately intended to be limited to one place or building, but rather enjoyed and experienced all over the world should inform your evangelistic efforts in our city and to the ends of the earth. And we certainly should be giving thanks that the Lord would meet us thousands of miles away from where Abraham, Joseph, and Moses lived. Third point, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, die for it. If God met his servants in foreign lands to declare his glory, we must cross our street or walk next door to declare the gospel. We must be willing to do that. If God met with Abraham, Joseph, and Moses in foreign lands, some of us need to be sent to foreign lands to reveal God's glory to God's elect overseas. Stephen's death is the first martyrdom in church history as Stephen follows in the footsteps of his Savior, the head of the church, Jesus. Stephen was certainly bold, filled with godly courage by the Spirit, but it wasn't a rash or harsh boldness or courage. It wasn't a man shaking his fist and saying, I'm not scared of you. It was a humble boldness. He was bold in proclaiming Christ to Hellenist Jews in the synagogue. He was proclaiming Christ to a hostile crowd in Acts 6 to 7. He really doesn't spend much time actually addressing the false charges against him. He does, but that's not the focus. Stephen was bold because he feared God rather than men. But that's humility. He knew King Jesus was on the throne, sovereign over the most minuscule details of his trial. He knew he was proclaiming the irrefutable Old Testament grounded truth about Jesus, but his boldness was a humble boldness. He cared about those men to whom he preached, he identified with them as our fathers, brothers, and fathers. He didn't treat them as enemies. Even when they seized him, sought to stone him, he didn't lash out or fight back. How dare you hurt me? He prayed for them as they killed him, like Jesus. Stephen didn't go looking for martyrdom, but he didn't run away from it when God brought it to him. Stephen humbly understood that he was following in the footsteps of his Savior. He entrusted himself to the God who raised Christ and who always judges justly. And as we evangelize and endure suffering for righteousness' sake, let us do it with humble confidence in Christ. Humble confidence in the gospel. We don't need to go looking for suffering. Okay? You don't need to go looking for suffering. God will bring it to you. Make yourself ready for it. Don't go looking for suffering, but we don't need to run from it when God brings it to our doorstep either. We aren't more holy because we suffer, but it is a good gift from the Lord. We're holy because God has made us temples in Christ, and so we suffer well. So when God brings suffering in our lives for His sake, we humbly receive it and we keep proclaiming the truth of the gospel. We keep evangelizing, even if it brings hardship and suffering. We preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, we die for it. But Stephen is also humble and bold because he knows Scripture. Acts 7 closes with Stephen being given a, a heavenly vision where he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. Now, Jesus is standing in this vision rather than sitting, as Scripture elsewhere describes him. Likely because Jesus is showing Stephen, I'm getting ready to judge. I'm getting ready to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. It's soon. It's coming soon, brother. I'm not sitting back. I'm ready to come. But it's, it's interesting that like, other than Jesus himself using the term, Stephen is the only person in the New Testament to refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days, and Yahweh gives the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples and nations and languages will serve Him as His indestructible kingdom. And dominion lasts forever. In, in Daniel 7, in the context, it shows us that in the short term, a Son of Man and a Savior who's given all dominion, like the enemies of God will make war against the saints and they'll prevail over them for a short period. But then it will say, until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Daniel seven twenty-one 21-22. Stephen knows that while the enemies of God might take his life because of preaching Christ, their plans are doomed. They will soon fall under God's condemnation on the last day. So one day soon, Daniel and Stephen tells us, the son of man will consummate his kingdom and the saints will possess the kingdom in its fullness. The kingdom isn't in its fullness yet. I'm dealing with sin. Y'all are dealing with sin. We're dealing with like traffic, no traffic in the new creation, like no sickness, no sorrow. We live in a time where King Jesus is on the throne, but sin and death still reign over most of humanity. We call that the already not yet. Jesus is already king, and yet the kingdom is not yet consummated fully. God's enemies are seeking to prevail over the church, and Christians suffer for the sake of this glorious Son of Man, but God will put all of Christ's enemies under his feet, and the last enemy is death. And when that is done... Jesus will usher in the new creation, our true home, and he will give the kingdom to God the Father. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15. Until that day, we preach the only message that reveals how God has defeated sin and death in the person and work of his Son. We proclaim the gospel to all peoples because God isn't constrained to one geographical place. No man made building can contain God's glory. God is dwelling in his people. This place is holy on the Lord's day because the people of God are gathered. We could make the grass in the backyard holy if we wanted to gather out there, but it's wet. <laughs> we can't put sound equipment out there. We, we want all peoples to be submitted to King Jesus now in this life under grace rather than eventually bending the knee in judgment on the last day. Because you will bend the knee. It's a reality. I will too. Either as a brother or as an enemy. We follow the lead of Stephen. We proclaim the gospel as God leads us regardless of the cost because we do not fear him who can destroy the body but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul and hell. We fear God rather than men. We preach because God has called His apostles and church to fulfill the Great Commission. We evangelize the lost without fear of knowing what to say because Jesus promised us that He would give us the words to say when we needed it by the Spirit. We evangelize unbelievers without fearing persecution or loss of life because while the enemies of God might seem to prevail in the short term, the Ancient of Days is coming and He will give the kingdom to His saints. We don't want people around us to miss God's salvation in Christ and bear God's wrath for eternity so we preach the gospel at all times and when necessary we suffer and die for it. It's worth it. It's worth it. This life isn't the end. This is the worst that it ever gets for a Christian. So why not just leave it all out on the court for the sake of Christ? As a local church, we must be on God's mission, caring for one another, loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, building one another up. Serving the saints is primary, but we must also preach and proclaim to those who will believe when they hear. May God help us to boldly preach Christ crucified as we shine our light for Christ in holiness.